On today's Citizen Stewart Show, we're talking about Abbott Elementary and their treatment of charter schools, and we are also talking about whether or not we can trust parents when it comes to spending the money on their kids' education. Stay tuned for the Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and the stories that aren't being covered. Looking to shed some light on the dark forces affecting our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart. I'm also the CEO of Brightbeam, a nonprofit network of activists fighting for educational opportunity and justice for every child. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer and a former superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South. Ravi, how are you doing, man? Welcome to another show. I'm doing well, man. I'm in lower Manhattan and just things are getting hot down here. We're getting ready for the Trump indictment. Seems like it's inevitable. You basically can see it from out my window, like where the DA's office is. And, you know, I think we're recording this on a Monday, I think in the next 24 hours, potentially, certainly this week, it seems like the inevitable indictment's going to happen. Protests will probably ensue down here. Wow. So it's getting dicey. Um, That's interesting that you're living right at ground zero from that. And when you say I'm in Manhattan, but for people who can't see right now, Ravi is wearing overalls. Um, I didn't know that this was standard issue in the the vaunted ceilings of Manhattan. What are you doing, man? First of all, I've always worn overalls since I was a little kid. I, I had my red Oshkosh overalls. And when I was in high school, I had multiple pairs of Tommy Hilfiger overalls with like the Tommy Hilfiger on the strap. Oh, with the one know? strap down. Yeah. Okay. So I have right. many pairs. I still have some of those. So look, I've been doing this for a long time. They're very comfortable. People can go to hell. They want to criticize me on this. You know, it's my style. <laughs> I think that's pretty violent. They can go to hell. Okay, listeners, uh, you can go to hell if you don't like uh, overalls, apparently. Well, listen, let's jump in because we got a lot in this show. Later, we're going to be interviewing Adam Peshek, who is part of the Stand Together community, which is a national campaign to loosen up the way that we uh, see education, to give parents a lot more options and a lot more control over the funding. We're going to be talking to him a little bit about a piece that he wrote regarding ESAs. And for those of you listening who don't know what an ESA is, it's an education savings account. It's a way for you to get access to the money that we spend on your kids in your public schools. And it gives you lots of choices and options of how you spend that money. You might get your kids some extra tutoring. You might get them a different type of school. You might do a lot of things with it. Uh, There's some ups and some downs to it. We'll talk to Adam about that later. But now at the beginning of the show, because this is the part of the show where we talk about mad, things that make me you know, mad or get under my skin or whatever. And uh, Ravi, you wrote about this. It's an issue with, the, with a television show called Abbott Elementary. It's an award-winning television show. I've watched it not entirely religiously, uh, like everybody else has. One of my favorite characters of all time in, in television is the principal on this show. <laughs> Ava is the, the principal on this show, and it's the funniest, most self-absorbed principal characterization I've ever seen, and it's hilarious. But what's not so hilarious is that the show this season introduced a character that is a very flashy, well-dressed black man who runs legendary charter schools. And his goal is to destroy the traditional public schools of Philadelphia. That's the storyline, the plot line. And here's where the plot thickens. It's not on the show. <laughs> it's not on the show. It's on Twitter, where uh, you know a friend, Jeannie Allen, who runs the Center for Education Reform, tweeted at Quinta Brunson, who is the writer and the founder of the show, the creator of the show, 
and kind of called her out for having attended a charter school, but having a story or plotline that's so anti-charter. And that didn't end well. A white woman from a billionaire-funded foundation going after a black woman who just won awards for a piece of artwork that she's been working on created quite the ruckus in black Twitter. And uh, black Twitterers were dragging <laughs> my friend Jeannie Allen. And of course, as you might suspect, they were bringing up the guard for Quinta. But you wrote about this, Ravi. What do you think about it? Well, yeah, and I think the way she attacked Quinta Brunson was important she said she attended a charter school. She reportedly loved it at the time. He prays on it once upon a time. Guess money talks. <laughs> so look, I literally wrote six separate problems I had with Jeannie Allen's response. So I'm not going to talk about all six of them, but I'll talk about the most important one, which is Quinta Brunson is an alum of a charter school. And I want to underline that. She was one of our students. She was one of our students and she's made it big. And she wrote something in her show that's not flattering to charter schools. The answer to that isn't to personally attack her for trying to make money off of her experience. Like, that couldn't be more wrong as a response. Like, this is somebody who we love. We love our students. And so when you love somebody, you should probably take the care to engage with them in a respectful manner and assume the best about them. The second problem I have with this is that it's art. And that we should not be getting into the business. I know, and I know we got worked up over it or whatever, but I'm watching this saying like, look, yeah, there are some things that Quinn Brunson has said in and around this that we should engage with. And like when we start to make meaning from the art, that's different. But the art itself should be right-sized, right? Like when people create fictional characters based on their experiences, there's a million different reasons why they might want to do that. And we shouldn't get all crazy about it and start to argue with logic. I have a whole separate opinion about how to handle the people trying to weaponize this show. That's different. And I'll say the third thing here is that Jeannie Allen is not the right messenger to be having this conversation directly with Quinta Brunson. It, it couldn't look worse for yeah. reformers to have somebody like this who, I don't know her. I, I wish her no ill will. I don't like it when anybody gets attacked on Twitter like that, even if they're wrong. But both the way she engaged... And where she, like her personal experience, I can only assume, are not a great fit for a debate about somebody's character who's one of our students who's made it big and has some unflattering things to say, whether fictional or not, about potentially her experience or other people's experiences. That's not how we should be engaging in this debate. Yeah, I think Ed Reform, all of Ed Reform is Jeannie Allen in this moment, kind of tin-eared, tone-deaf doesn't know how to talk to the people that they're talking to, doesn't realize that communication is about sending a message from a sender to a receiver with encoding and decoding between the two, and that without a strong relationship between the two, there's a lot that can get lost. That's just communications 101. Let's just talk about like we're communicating with the public here. Do you want to be right or do you want to win? Do you want to just like uh, say the thing like, you know, we do a lot of things in every form in terms of communications. We attack teachers, we attack teachers unions when we know that teachers are the most trusted and valued voice in education in the United States to all the audiences that we're attempting to communicate with. Right. So whether you agree with it or not, it's probably just a dumb strategy. It's just not not smart. It makes us feel good. 
in the moment. Oh, let's 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 drag somebody or whatever. And in the moment, you feel good. I get it. I'm I've been there. I'm that guy. Like I, I've enjoyed that myself. I've like had fun with it uh, at times and realized at some point it's just not the productive way to go. Now I will say this: Jeannie Allen is very conservative. This isn't the first time that she has done this. She's a stalwart. She was at the beginning of many of the reforms that we talk about, like charter schools and others. Jeannie's record goes back many years. So I get why she feels like some pride of ownership over the movement. And, you know, she sees a plot line like this. I think we just overcorrected on how important it is for there to be a negative plot line about charters in one sitcom on one part of, you know, the TV universe. Yeah, and you and I talked about it, but we moved on. We literally talked about it for five minutes on a show and moved on. Yeah. But let me say this about Jeannie. Jeannie Allen, I disagree with her on so much here. She had a similar incidence when Freddie Gray, the whole situation with Freddie Gray happened in Baltimore. And she tweeted something kind of to the effect that if there had been school choice, maybe his life wouldn't have ended the way that it did or something like that. And that no, became, she didn't. Yeah, that became a big deal on, on Twitter back then. Like, uh, that was a big kind of trip. How does this person, I don't mean to be mean, how does this person still have a job and funding? This is what I want to say. Jeannie is the, is the kindest person I've ever met on the right wing side. She is, she is literally the kindest, most generous person who has opened the doors for the most number of people of color that I, that I know on the serious right-wing side. I'm being very clear about like how I phrase this. Like Of all the people that exist on the serious right-wing, conservative wing of Ed Reform, she's probably the most generous, kindest person uh, that even when we disagree, she still opens doors for you. And she's still... And, and I can... I'm not the only one. Like, I, I, I could line up several people that would say the same thing. Here's my problem, though, Chris. Like, when I look at this, and I, I, there's some people who look at this and say, oh, this is one of our own. This is an Ed Reformer getting into a fight. And I know that's not what you're necessarily saying. When I look at this, I say, this is one of my students, and somebody's attacking one of my students. That's how I look at it. I don't care if you have Ed Reform next to your name. If one of my students was attacked in the way that, she, that Jeannie Allen attacked Quinta Brunson, I would be calling up funders myself saying this person needs to be fired. That's the thing. It's like, we are about our students. That is what we do. We love our students. Yeah, she's higher up in the funder chain than you are, though, my friend. Well, I don't <laughs> give a shit. She's pretty I don't high give up. a shit at our funders listen to this. Like, if our, if our funders aren't smart enough to realize how stupid and catastrophic this fight was for the movement and yeah. just morally incorrect it was, I just want to underline this. Like, I get up every single day. I don't care how much money you send me. I get up every single day for my students. And yeah. if you want to call me and be upset, this is your friend, don't waste your time. Like, you know, I love my kids. Anybody who attacks our students should not be in the movement. Period. Well, now you're backing me into court. You're making me defend Jeannie Allen, which is the craziest thing. This is what you do to me, my friend. You you make me like defend the indefensible sometimes. That's why this is good podcasting. We, we have to have different perspectives. Yeah. I don't like the strategy here that Jeannie took, but but let me talk in her defense just for a moment here. And I like I'm gonna get in trouble for even talking in her defense in this way. I'll get my ass drug here, but hey, whatever. The bottom line is that Jeannie jumps in on a situation like this because she feels like she's defending you and all of the school leaders who are being drugged by Quinta, right? So if we look at the show, the show has three black males. Black males make up 2% of education and educators. And there are three black males on this show. All of three are at different levels of incompetence. The charter school leader dresses like a pimp, acts like a pimp, and is the most nefarious character on the entire show. 
And in terms of portrayals, see, we can have an internal black-on-black discussion that doesn't involve the rest of the world where we say to someone like Quinta, like, listen, there's only 2% of black males in education. Why in the, why This is a weird choice. I know too many good, strong, solid black men running charter schools for this to be the representation that you transmit to the world. Now, that's an internal discussion. That's a black-on-black discussion that we should possibly have. And that's not Jeannie Allen getting in the middle. But I do know, to Jeannie's credit, what she's thinking is the same as what I'm thinking is, I know too many strong black men running charter schools to not defend them when they're portrayed this way. And so when you were running charter schools in Nashville, for instance, there were times where you were getting your ass just kind of like chewed out in many different directions. And I'm sure you remember the people who showed up for you and the ones who didn't, the ones who went silent yeah. as you were collecting all kinds of crap. And that's Jeannie in this situation. Jeannie would be the type that if she was in your in your city, she wouldn't have been one of the ones who, if she was a friend of yours, would have been silent about you getting chewed out by those people that were on you. And I love that particular part of her. But at the same time, the two problems. Number one is I was never asking anybody to go against my kids. Ever. Like, I would never want anybody to stand up and and go after any of her kids, whether they're wrong or right, ever. I've had kids who've been convicted of murder before, and I would still show up to that arraignment and be really sad. I show up for my kids no matter what they do. Now, in this case, I don't think this is the equivalent of committing murder. It's a fictional TV show that she's been really successful at. And so the point I make in in my piece is there is a conversation to be had about the portrayal. She's not the right person to be having that conversation. I'm probably not the right one either. And so I kind of take a step back. Like you say, that's a black on black conversation. Now, if somebody wants to recruit me to that, I'll give my opinion. Uh, I have to really think about it. (laughs) We'll make you honorary black for a day. But the other thing I have to say is like, we only, like anybody who touches education reform, so, so called, like gets paid to be effective, not paid to be well-intentioned. So you could be well-intentioned all you want, right? But let's say like, you know, like you're on the Buffalo Bills and you can't throw a pass 10 yards. People could be like, that's a really nice locker room presence. Let him be a locker room presence somewhere else. For me, you have got to engage in ways that are helpful if you're going to put that Ed Reform name next to you. Otherwise, I don't want to ride with you. I don't care how well-intentioned or loyal you are. I feel like you're helping me. By forcing me to defend Jeannie Allen, you're helping me be more (laughs) broad-minded because I would generally agree with you, and I'm definitely not a big fan of the right wing of ed reform right now. And I think that the right wing of ed reform is communicating all the wrong messages to the people that we need to persuade, that when it comes to chartering, the chartering of schools, when it comes to having more options for families and more avenues or whatnot, we need to talk to the public better because we're not winning necessarily in many of the places that we need to uh, because we have the wrong messages and the wrong messengers. So that's, that's just a given. So let's just say that part. But you're pushing me to defend her in this one way, which is when I am in trouble, when I am like getting my ass called on the carpet for trying to do this work, as many of our charter leaders are, many of our school leaders are, who can't say anything. We have a wide number of rent-seeking education professionals in ed reform who are mealy-mouthed and don't say anything and always are trying to do the all is everything and all is great and blah, 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 whatever. Those are the worst people. And they'll want to put their careers on the line for you when they know that you're in trouble or whatnot. That is not Jeannie Allen. Jeannie Allen will come to your defense and she will roll with you 
through the lion's den. But, but here's the problem. I agree with you. I agree with you on that. Look, the, the worst the worst offenders are those people you're describing. The bystanders. Those people suck. Yeah, the bystanders. And honestly, like there's a whole separate podcast about those people. And you know, the same funders you heard me about, Jeannie Allen, they hate it when I talk about those bystanders because they've been funding them forever. Those people suck. And what sucks about this whole exchange is that if it were only a choice between those bystanders and Jeannie Allen, I would ride with Jeannie Allen. The problem happened when she attacked a student. She didn't attack a student. Former student. To me, there's no difference. Former. She attacked a grown-ass woman. No, but there's she no difference to me. She attacked a grown-ass woman. There's no difference to me. Who could be doing damage to us. There is, there is a difference. Some of your students can grow up to come and ruin things for the rest of your students. I don't think that's her intention. I don't know Quinta Brunson. There's a lot of work that needs to be done before we go there with her, in my opinion, because she's part of our family. The problem is my loyalty starts with the kids we serve. So, yes. I got it. Like, like when you talk about my loyalty to Jeannie Allen, a woman I've never met, and Quinta Brunson, somebody I've never met, the tiebreaker always to me is, are you a student or a former student? Because to me, that's what I, what I get up for every single day. Like, that's what we do the work for. But like, we need to engage the right way, the right person and engaging in the right way. And that did not happen in either like on, in no way did this. And so look, I like, look, I'm getting a little worked up. I don't know if any people need to lose their job or anything like that. I'll walk that back. I'd like to see you worked up. I'd like to see this. But I this love our kids. This is the thing. I just don't want us to lose sight of what the hell we are here doing, which is educating children. Like that's our job. Like, and that's what pisses me off about this whole, this whole thing. Well, we're doing two things, Ravi. We're educating children, but we're also blocking and tackling against adults that are doing harm to, to, to children also. And I think there could be a case to be made that these type of portrayals in mass media are irresponsible. They change the dynamic of power in politics in places that does hurt kids, right? Like, I don't think we can stop with, well, she's a former student. I think we have to go further than that because lots of former students end up doing things that are harmful to the kids coming up behind them. For instance, they they end up being political actors or creating public narratives that actually cut off opportunities for kids to learn. I, I just, you know, you made me change my mind in the course of this show because I was writing about it and I am going to finish up what I was writing about it to offer my my opinion on it. And I am right now having a mini war with the right wing of our movement. And I think they're tone deaf and wrong. And I think they're pushing a lot of the policies that are going to turn off specifically our people in, in urban areas that we need to convince that we have an answer for them. There's a lot being done wrong, but of the people that are doing the wrong stuff, Jeannie Allen, I have to say again, is one of the most door opening, generous kind of kind people that I've met on that side of the fence. And I just have to be honest about it. And I support Quinta and I support Abbott Elementary. I think it's a funny show. At the same time, it's promoting a very kind of stereotypical, dangerous narrative about a black man running a school system. There's too few of black males in education like that to make this a dominant narrative. And to have white progressives latch on to it and love it because because it's a black woman beating up the black male who runs a charter school at a time when that's what's going on literally in Philly right now like the idea that we need to take these charters out. So Yeah, I, I agree with everything you say about the show and, and all the issues I have with it. I just, my problem is with how we've engaged here. And, yeah. and that's the issue. That's the great thing about this show. The Citizen Stewart show takes on issues that are complicated and have no easy answer. And we're actually not dogmatists. We're not actually just like pushing our dogma around this. 
All right. Great discussion, Ravi. As always, we're going to keep talking about these issues that have no easy answer. Uh, and this certainly is one that probably will come back on us. If people are listening, we love to hear what you think about Abbott Elementary and tell us by sending us a message. We'll tell you how to do that later. But keep listening because now our next guest is Adam Peshek, who is one of the leaders at a campaign called Yes, Every Kid. He wrote a piece recently on ESAs, which are education savings account. And he's saying that they don't need the charter treatment. What he means by that is that they don't need to be overly regulated, and we're going to have to have some spirited conversation and debate about this. I'm interested to see where Ravi goes with this, but please welcome Adam Peshek to the show. So Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. So you wanted to cause some trouble. You wrote this piece in your Substack. Permissionless education is your Substack for people that are looking for it. You wrote this piece on ESAs don't need the charter treatment, a conflict of visions on education choice. And in it, you were taking on the idea that some have, both on the left and the right, the ESAs, and for people listening, this is a form of school choice that gets set up by the state that allows parents direct access to the funding that you normally would get for a person's education, for your child's education, and gives them some control over how to use that funding. And there's a call from some on the right and the left for there to be a lot of like regulations. There's almost this nervousness around, oh, if we give that money to the parents and then insert horror stories, insert all kinds of possible things. And you push back on that. Your piece is kind of like, no, <laughs> like uh, I'm not worried. So tell me more about like, first of all, what do you mean by ESAs, which are education savings account for people listening, don't need the charter treatment? And what are you attempting to do in terms of quelling people's fears about ESAs? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, education savings accounts, you know, these take funds typically that would usually be spent on a child in a public school and they put them in some sort of a use restricted account. That allows them to use it on a lots of different spending categories. You know, vouchers kind of 1.0 where you can take your money, you can go to a private school. ESAs are you can take your money, you can go to a private school, but you can also use it to get tutoring, you can use it to get therapies if you have a disability, you can use it to buy curriculum. Kind of uh, sky's the limit in terms of different things you could do to kind of assemble a different type of education. It doesn't preclude you from just spending it all on a private school, it doesn't preclude you from doing some of the traditional stuff, but it also allows you to do more. And so, you know, the, the question of accountability around private school choice programs has been going on forever. I mean, I've been doing this work since 2008. And like every year on the dot, there's a debate about, should we use state tests? Should we use norm reference tests? There's all these things about, you know, how should we structure these programs? And with the new ESA debates, they're, they're going more towards what should we allow parents to use for education? And so uh, a lot of the calls from the right that you talk about are typically, I think, from more traditional charter school supporters who I would probably put in like the precautionary uh, role of, of regulations where, um, you know, precautionary principle says that, you know, innovation should be blocked unless until you can kind of mitigate all the risks that might be coming down the road from that innovation. Um, it's, it's kind of a fear of the unknown. It's a bias towards kind of restricting new things until there's conclusive evidence that those new things are going to do lots of good and very little harm. And if you think about that, that's kind of like how the FDA works with approving new medicines, right? Like pharmaceutical co company gives them a pill. They say, okay, we're going to spend several years testing and doing all these things to make sure that there's no harm, or at least the harm is minimal enough that the benefits outweigh the risks. On the other side, there's like the more permissionless innovation people. And I'm on the more permissionless innovation side of things for education. 
And that's this idea that you should have the freedom to develop kind of new products, new approaches in a relatively unconstrained fashion. And it's more of a bias towards entrepreneurship and kind of an idea that, you know, innovations should be allowed to happen by default and harm needs to be proven and then dealt with as it happens, as opposed to mitigating all those things before a new innovation hits the market. And you can kind of think of like tech as kind of more on the permissionless innovation side of things. And so when I say that, you know, ESAs don't need the charter achievement, my bias is that we have a lot of precautionary principle in education. There's a lot of trying to produce policies and other things that take care of the, the most out there possibility for fraud, for potential misuse, for all that kind of stuff. And that, I think, has slowed down innovation. And if you take it back to the kind of FDA analogy, during a pandemic, they really re- loosened the restrictions on things about like vaccines and things like that. They saw that there was an emergency. And they short, shortened the time frame that it would usually take to get something to hit the market. And I kind of think we're in a pandemic, literally a pandemic situation in education, uh, where the precautionary principle has led to lots of things that have caused more harm than good in my position. So that's what I mean by they don't need the charter treatment. I think we need to have much more innovation, bottom-up innovation, letting parents, educators, uh, families figure out what's going to work for them in ways that we haven't seen, that charter schools have been a little bit more top-down, in my opinion. So I think like one question I have is, what regulations you think should exist and shouldn't exist. So I think like as a starting point, I'm going to throw a couple of things out there. Cause I think there are a lot of charter people I know who I'm not sure they, they even have a theory on the precautionary principle. They're just kind of like, give me a mechanism to start a school in the way where I have the least amount of red tape possible. So in many ways, and a lot of those people probably listen to this podcast, they're probably persuadable one way or the other. They probably haven't spent a lot of time thinking about one way or another what the regulation looks like. They probably want as little of it as possible. But I think what they're worried about is being lumped together with charlatans, frauds, people stealing money. And they also are really careful like about the debate around charters because they don't want to be lumped together with people who don't know how to run schools because like the legitimacy of charter schools matters to them a lot. So putting that aside for a second, so things that I support controls over finances, right? Like not handing money out to people who are stealing money or misappropriating money. You know, I probably support certain, you know, there's like, this isn't a finance podcast, but certain rules around accounting. Like in Tennessee, we used to have to use government accounting, for instance, in our charter schools. And it wasn't that onerous. It was fine. It was easy to deal with. So those are all things I would support. I would support some measure that allows us to measure the quality of these things. So requirement that they take state tests at the end of the year, probably, or some test where we could collect data on what's working and what isn't seems to make sense. Those are some of the things that I would just start with. Do you support those? Or are you even like, hey, let's not even let's not even tell them what to do with this money at all and let a thousand flowers bloom? Yeah. I mean, so I think from the start, I think of ESAs as funding families, particularly parents or guardians who kind of have oversight of how these things are spent. So the question of what should what should they be able to spend their money on from an ESA, I kind of think there's three categories. There's the what I would say are objectively fine, like the people, most rational people would say shouldn't be a problem. Private school, therapies for students with disabilities, tutoring, things that are objectively, I think, okay. Then there's the objectively probably not okay. And most rational people would say, we shouldn't let them use this on, you know, food and alcohol and to, you know, pay their car payments and things like that. 
But there's this big gray area of not quite sure if we should be able to use it. And, you know, the 74 did an article where they kind of went through some of them and a lot of them saw these expenses as kind of objectively bad. But I think they're more gray area. Things like, should you be able to spend it to have your kid go to a museum? Should you be able to go buy, you know, they, they used an example of a, a family using their ESA to buy a Time Life video series on the history of aviation. I think that that's okay. Do I think that a regulator is going to be in a position to be able to take those sorts of types of small, questionable things and be able to create frameworks around them? Probably not. So I'm I'm all about let's get let's make sure that we can block any of the objectively bad ones, and that list may continue as things grow. Right as we find new data and new things that uh, maybe are objectively bad, you add that to the list. But I don't want that you know, regulating for the objectively bad stuff to get in the way of letting families experiment with that whole list of other things that could be good for those students. On the quality side, you know, the academic quality, I am less uh, enamored with that uh, for lots of reasons. Um, I think there's... And the that being like standardized testing requirements or anything like that? Standardized testing, particularly like state testing. I mean, a good example like that I'll use for the charter school analogy is like, you might be familiar with the charter school in Louisiana that Senator Bill Cassidy's wife has run for a long time. And it focuses on students with dyslexia and other kind of learning disabilities. And for a long time, this school has gotten an F consistently on the state report card. Consistently. It's never gotten above an F. It's, it's serving these hardest to educate students who are coming in multiple years behind because they haven't found out until the fourth grade that they have dyslexia and they're so far behind. And they just can't make it up, right? They just cannot make up the, the lost uh, time. Meanwhile, the parents are satisfied. They're seeing stuff at home that says their kid is, is doing much better than they were before. They're learning things. It's just an improvement. Meanwhile, they've never gotten above an F on the accountability system. And there's people in the state who say, like, this, this should be shut down. And not only are they not shutting down, they're getting to replicate. But why? My suspicion would be that if you didn't have such political stature with that school, and this was just a regular teacher who decided they wanted to do this and they were serving families, but they didn't have the ability to like petition the board to be able to replicate, that school would probably be closed to the disadvantage of lots of families. And so I think these things are nuanced. I think there's there's a fine line between transparency and kind of top-down accountability. And I'm much more about a choice of accountability. So you're saying in general, so it seems like what you're saying would apply to any school. So you're saying you're against standardized testing generally? I think the bargain has always been more choice, less top-down accountability. I mean, the, the bargain has always been framed as the reason we need to do these things that mimic what a market would usually do through accountability and state testing is that the people had no choice. They couldn't vote with their feet. So we have to create all this sort of data to be able to show people what it looks like. And the bargain that I've heard from lots of people for a long time is the more choice you have, the less accountability you should have. Because people can then vote with their feet and it's not just a kind of metric fixation of, How's your kid doing on math and reading? But you can kind of have other signals. And so that's still where I'm at. You know, I think as states, as, you know, people have more options and more ability to create unique learning environments, accountability systems need to change to allow for those things. I mean, a good example, like in the charter sector, the Fordham Institute several years ago did a report on like, here are the three warning signs that your charter school might be in a, might be a failure down the road. And they took like 600 charter school applications and they looked at what, what they were at like five or 10 years later, like what would be the chances that your charter school wouldn't survive? And some of them were things like fiscal or irresponsibility, things like that. 
But one of the three was using a child-centered pedagogy, like Montessori or Waldorf or things like that, which leads me to believe that it has less to do about whether or not those schools are serving families correctly and more to do about whether or not those schools can fit within the framework that charter schools were designed to fit under. Because if you look around, there's like 3,000 Montessori schools across the country with huge demand from families. It's not for lack of demand. I think it's for lack of not fitting into the the mold of what they're supposed to look like. Yeah, a couple of problems here. A couple of things that I think are important. So first of all, Adam, I'm probably the most on your side. Like your, your piece gave me heartburn because I'm probably most in DNA, in terms of intellectual DNA, I'm probably your guy. Like we're 100% aligned. Like I, I, I could have written this as a matter of fact, like a couple of years ago, this would be me writing this. And then to see Checker Finn being like one of the most revered kind of conservatives with the longest possible view on education reform, be a person who's in your piece as somebody who's saying, hey, maybe we should have some regulations. That's a that's kind of like an intellectual mind, you know, uh, whatever <laughs> to, to see like Checker be the one to say, hey, maybe we need some safeguards to have you kind of be more, I think. Uh, liberatory in the thinking, and then to know what the institutions would say. So the the mainline institutions would definitely say we have to regulate, regulate, regulate. A couple of things here, though. One, I think the promise always was more autonomy for more accountability. I don't think it was more choice for more accountability, meaning we just leave it up to parents to vote with their feet. I think that was always a part of the school choice kind of intellectual sales pitch. But I think the educational sales pitch has been we should give schools more freedom and give educators more freedom to educate in many different ways and then just put some accountability mechanisms in place to make sure that they're getting somewhere. So you mentioned the list of things like the 74. This is the heartburn I have, Adam, is that I 100% agree with you. I 100% agree with your piece. And it's something that I would believe in. And I worry about if it's actually operationalized and it fails. And it creates enough of those weird, crazy stories about somebody who took all their government money and went and took Reiki on some mountain somewhere and had their kid like make goat cheese and then their kid couldn't read in life and was illiterate and whatever. Or we just had whole swaths of urban populations where uh, nothing mattered anymore. It's just like you could just do anything. You just take kids to museums and whatever. And the idea that they would need to read at some point, need to write, need to think critically or whatever, would never be a compelling government interest, a compelling societal or community interest is what scares me because I agree with you and your piece. And I see how it would all fall down the moment that all those crazy stories started coming out with entire cities that couldn't read, uh, with entire systems of parents that put their kids into like wacky hippie farms and got fully publicly funded to do it. And then at some point, somebody does have to remediate their kids. Their kids like get put back into the system or they start showing up at high school to schools having had this totally wacky elementary experience that leaves them four years behind. And now the high schools, the traditional high schools, the end of our kind of libertarian project, right? Like total end of our project. I don't know how to answer that. I don't think that that's a question, but I just want to say to you, like I have a libertarian's DA on this in my own way of thinking is like set the people free, give the money to the parents, let the parents do. Fun families, not systems is something that I started saying years ago, right? This is something I'm known for. And I've also seen the way that these things blow up in your face once the quality isn't there. Well, can I say something on that? Yeah, go ahead, Ravi. You know, when I was asking about testing, you know, Adam, you talked about accountability, but those two things don't have to be linked. And in many ways, the transparency is just about us as taxpayers deciding whether something's working or not, especially as a as a childless, unmarried person. 
ostensibly I would be subsidizing that kayak. So I want to know something about whether that money is being well spent. Now, if it's just your money, do whatever the hell you want with it. But at a certain point, if, if you're asking me to pay my full taxes and somebody else not to pay their full taxes, and you're also potentially taking some of the money I pay into the tax fund, and you might be giving that money to somebody else, depending on how the, the law is written, I may have like something to say about the data that we collect about whether that's working or not. And the other thing we didn't talk about is whether there's any fraud being committed. And at a time where there's like a whole debate happening around funding the IRS or defunding the IRS, I can imagine, Adam, where you come down on that. Like, I'm not sure we have people who can even track that this money is being effectively spent. On that point, like, right, you have the child tax credit, which everyone says is like, cut poverty in half and it's the greatest thing ever. And that was cutting $600 checks to parents. Everyone says it was spent well. How do they know it was spent well? Where well, they surveyed the parents and the parents told them it was spent well. So everyone, all right, all the, all the, all the boxes have been checked. This is a great program. Now you talk about giving parents that exact same thing for education. All of a sudden it's like, we can't trust them. They're going to misspend it. They're going to go out there and they're going to do all these crazy things. Right. So the difference between like a four-year-old and a six-year-old is somehow now we have fraudulent parents, right? And so that's the first thing I'd say is like, this isn't this idea of parents using money to go and create an education for their kid isn't new. It's happening with millions of kids today. The question is, should we expand access so that more kids and more families have the option to be able to do that? So the real question I think comes down to the, the, the quiet part out loud is, can low income or lower income families who don't currently have the funds to be able to do this on their own, can they spend wisely? Not only that, can the subset of low-income parents who opt their kids into this program, can they spend wisely? And I'm biased to say that if you're going to go to the effort to actually go and do this for your kid, you're likely to do a better job of, of it than just outsourcing it to someone who, by the way, is failing these kids on a day-to-day -day basis, which by the way, is producing cities where you have 0% of kids reading proficiently which by the way, is using money fraudulently on a regular basis, right? And so this isn't about substituting the program, the, the existing education system we have. It's creating a new program that can create new opportunities for people. And so this isn't like a one size fits all. Now, if this discussion was, should we take the current system and force everyone into an ESA against their will? That's probably a different discussion than should we give families the option to opt into this program? Because we talk about, you know, uh, the market not responding to families' needs. Like, if you had money and time during the pandemic, you probably had not only an okay situation for your kids. In some cases, the studies have shown that your kids were performing better than when they were in the system prior, right? Because you were seeing what was going on. You were fine-tuning to what your kids need. You were creating things that were actually now looking at what your kids' strengths and weaknesses are. I think we're at a, a point in time where... I saw what happened during the pandemic. I mean, a lot of this rhetoric could have been done pre-pandemic. And it's confusing to me because people left the pandemic with the same view of parents and the same view of like education regulators that they had going into the pandemic. And to me, when push comes to shove, we can use all these words about parents not being involved, not knowing how to spend well and all this kind of stuff. Push comes to shove, it's responsibility of the families. And that's what we saw during the pandemic. That's why we see record numbers of Black and Hispanic families homeschooling, record numbers of families that are deciding to go create preferences instead of education. Oh, I'm a classical school parent. I'm a Montessori parent. You're starting to get people who actually understand what their kids need and want 
And that's a great thing. And ESAs help facilitate the ability to do more of that. Can you take one minute just on the difference between ESAs and the other school choice instruments? So like vouchers and, you know, kind of what's the difference here? If I was listening to this and I didn't know the difference between ESAs and the others, what's the difference? Yeah. I mean, when you think about um, kind of private school choice programs, there's how the money's generated and how the money can be spent. So on the generation side, you know, we don't need to get into that. It can be tax credit funded. It can be government funded, whatever you want to call it. The real difference is on the spending side. Vouchers, they basically, if I'm a parent and I want to be in the voucher program and I want my kid to go to St. Paul's Catholic School, I go to that school and a, a, a check is cut basically in a certain amount to pay for that child's tuition. It's just attaching the money to a kid to go to a private school. If it's a $7,000 voucher and the, and the tuition is $6,000, that $1,000 is left on the table. You're basically just going into the school. ESAs, it's not funding your kid to go to a different school. It's basically like a health savings account to a certain extent where money is going into the account and I can use it for lots of different purposes. If I just want to direct all that fund to a kid for a private school tuition, you can do that. If I want to put 75% of it towards private school tuition and 25% of it towards tutoring or therapy Whatever it is, I can do that. It's a much more multi-use, flexible account that families can use for a variety of education purposes, not just school tuition. And Chris, I have a question for you. So you have previously, on this very podcast, criticized the opt-out movement, right? And so when we get back to this, like, collecting data front. So I, I think I'm confused, because it sounds like you're endorsing the idea that these that people who take the, these funds shouldn't have to take standardized tests. And I could be wrong about the insinuation there. Is that your view? So you you actually are pro opt out? Is that what I'm hearing? No, I, Adam and I don't agree on the the testing part of this. I think we agree on the spirit of funding families and funding families to have autonomy over how their child, who, what, when, where, and how of education for their kids. I uh, like I should, and especially for marginalized populations, historically marginalized people, I think have earned their right to have the full say of how, when, where, and by who their kids will be educated. I just feel like that's one of those kind of, let's just get over ourselves. That's a right that should be afforded to everybody who has denied that right in the past, right? It does introduce interesting questions though, about when you have government money, Right. Like we give 700, somebody correct me, $800 billion that we put into this thing called public education that used to have some strings that had bipartisan kind of agreement that, hey, if we're going to spend almost 800 billion, it used to be 700, however much, we're going to have to have some strings like attached to that money. There was a conservative case for regulation because we were spending that money. It was government money being spent. I think now it's the opposite. There is a bipartisan hippie movement of, hey man, just nothing means nothing. You know, we don't have to count anything. We, you know, like if kids, if if national proficiency goes into the crapper in America is number 50 out of, you know, 50 countries, it doesn't matter anymore. We don't have to count things. That used to not be. There used to be a bipartisan agreement, at least on some measures. We measure something. And we do still, let's not forget that we are still a country. We do still have a national priority of producing scientists and mathematicians and people get us to, to, to space and, you know, whatever. That hasn't died. That hasn't stopped happening. So I love tickets to SeaWorld as an option. I love like paying for families to be able to have all these experiences. I still as a country, I think we have a compelling interest in generating scientists. Well, I think there's a difference, right? I mean, I, I don't think that there's many parents or anyone who doesn't want their child to rent, to read and have numeracy. I think the trap we get into 
is taking things like testing and trying to create a system where debates about whether kids should learn calculus or data science become like the most important thing in the world versus like um, thinking about a system that's more designed for the individual needs of students. And we can talk about fourth grade reading all we want, but the problem is like we've created testing systems and we have bought into the logic that, well, we can get a list of every single school in the state and we can, we can rank order them and know which is the best and which is the worst. When in reality, maybe the testing can identify top flyers, low achievers, but there's a lot of gray area in that middle area. We're spending a lot of time on testing and things that are probably less productive than they can be doing otherwise. And so I think testing, accountability, transparency, that's all fine. Those things existed before 2001. They would exist if the federal you know, ESSA reauthorization got rid of testing requirements altogether. I don't think testing and the desire for transparency necessarily was created by policy. I think policy has taken them and gotten lots of people sour on them to where you have lots of people who, to Chris's point, oppose the idea of measurement because it's gone so overboard that they don't see the value. They don't see the value on the back end that they were promised on the front end. And so I think a more humble approach to accountability that is really focused on identifying the needs of individuals and giving parents what they need to make decisions is a lot different than what we have today. So I think like the reason why I can't quite get there is two reasons. One is this is a lot to ask to be like, hey, you know what? We're not just going to like in Arkansas in three years, give everybody the option to pull their kid out of the system and access to ESAs. But we also, like based on the logic of this conversation, we don't even want to get data on whether it's working or not. So we don't even want to say, hey, and we don't want to even agree on a common metric about what works and what isn't. Because I'm not this relativist, right? I don't think that, hey, can't measure like you know, I, what I want, I want my kid to be an actor. Somebody else wants my kid to be a doctor. So we can't say what's good or bad. Well, if your kid can't read in 12th grade, we can all agree that's bad. So I think like a lot, and a lot of these tests are basically that simple. You know, we're not asking kids to do backflips on a lot of these tests. We're saying, can you read a text? Do you understand it? Can you add fractional like denominators or no? And I'm, I'm warmer than a lot of my progressive friends on the ESAs, but but when I hear people arguing for ESAs and using the language of the teachers' unions who want to duck any accountability and are afraid of what the data tells them about schools, and they start using that language, then I'm like, well, what are you afraid of? Are you, are you afraid of the data? Because if you were confident, the data would actually show that people can read better in 12th grade on these. You know what I'm saying? For, for my friends in the teachers' union, that is Ravi speaking. Uh, what did you become <laughs> afraid of criticizing teachers' unions? Good you know, Lord, I, I don't say anything bad about uh, the teachers' union Good or Lord. TFA on this podcast. TFA Good either. Lord, but what Adam, I will say this. Adam, I don't what know What is your happening to you, Chris? Right. Another, like, another pod for that. Yeah. Good we'll Lord. do a whole pod on it. I actually may have missed, don't know your actual politics. I know mine have been libertarian politics for a long time. And sometimes libertarian politics can fall into utopian and into realistic visions. Like there's the utopian vision where, you know, we have all volunteer everything and we don't pay into a common kitty for anything and blah, blah, blah. And then there are the rational libertarians who know that we're nowhere close to that. That's not coming anytime soon. And we've got to figure out how to operate in the world as it is, like the real world as it is. So we're going to spend some money on some things and we should know whether they work or not. But I have a question for you that I think falls along those lines. It's, it's something I just already asked. But I want to ask you specifically, do you think there's a compelling societal and government interest in producing very traditional 
kind of occupational groups like scientists, mathematicians, astronomers, or whatnot? Should we be using the government interest and the, the school system to have some very rigorous tracks of very traditional merit-based occupational goals that are driven by what the country needs, not driven by what individual parents need necessarily? Uh, that's a tough one to answer because I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Like I don't think we have lots of doctors and scientists today because the public school will ask to produce them. I think we have lots of them today because people have an interest in those things and want to become those things. Um, my fear is like when you get the government involved determining what society needs, you know, it's why I'm sour on a lot of these kind of career bills. Like we need like, which usually turn into like, oh, the local chamber of commerce realizes they need 5,000 of this credential and therefore we're going to push 5,000 kids into this credential that maybe in 15 years will be so irrelevant that we're setting them up for you know failure, right? Like I have a real problem with like, we need 5,000 widgets and therefore here's 5,000 widget maker tracks. <laughs> I think things are a lot better when we like let people like read the world and come to their own conclusions. And now you're going after the CTE people. You guys are hitting on all the sacred cows today. This is like, this is another the reform. Sacred, sacred cows. Cow. The, the unions are your sacred. Chris, we need to have a talk, buddy. The, the, the unions have become your sacred cows. Is that where we're putting them? Uh, there? There's no such thing as a union free future, my friends. But it's a good example, right? Because like the, the career people will say, we need these 5,000 jobs. And like, you look at an ESA program, like maybe a kid wants to, use their ESA funds to go take like a, a lesson on dr flying drones, right? People might say that that's like a super crazy, like, why are we funding that? That guy might be running logistics for Amazon in 20 years, right? Like, we don't know how the world's going to look in the future. Like the local San Juan Silicon Valley Chamber of Commerce didn't create Silicon Valley. Like people tinkering in their garages created Silicon Valley. And these things can't be planned. And the more we try to plan these things from the top down, the more failure we get, in my opinion. All right. So, Adam, you wake up one morning and your plan is a wild success. And you guys have ESAs have swept the country. First of all, I just want for people listening, I just want to be realistic about the world. I'm not as enamored with the what's being called the school choice wave. Like, first of all, I don't think it's a wave. I think it's a very kind of very coordinated effort to get these bills introduced and passed and long time in the making. And it, it's not by happenstance. It's not some kind of random, you know, natural event. And two, I don't think that they fill up right away. I don't feel like you suddenly like you pass this law and then the next week you have like everybody in an ESA. There's time. There's like up ramps. There's stuff that has to happen. But anyways, Adam, let's say you're wildly successful. Lots of states pass this. They get them in place and you end up with a very highly popular, low quality output from states going to this. What do you do then? Meaning it's a very popular program. Parents love it. And, the you know, the state like like Arkansas is still 49th in terms of education, even after they do something like this. Now, to be fair, Arkansas is doing other things besides thinking about school choice. They're putting a lot of effort into reading and into actually improving actual education because choice isn't that. Choice is something different. But that's a long question just to say, what do you do? You wake up, you're wildly successful, and you have a very popular, low-quality program. Yeah, I mean, just accepting your premise, like we need to figure out what low-quality means. But let's just say that people think it's low-quality. Um, I, I don't buy into the premise that you have a highly popular thing that's low-quality. I just, I just don't buy into that premise. But I, I ultimately think, like your question about like adoption and success and enrollment, 
These are as much, I think, a check on the system as much as they are. This is giving people power to have the, the, the right to exit something. And ideally, the system is going to respond to their needs and be much more responsive because now they have an option to do something else. That's ultimately what I think one of the biggest takeaways from this is that you no longer have to you know, lobby a school board or plead to get your kid in with the right teacher in the school to get a good education. There's now an alternative to it. I think where these are going to go is that you're going to have the, the, the early studies of these programs have shown that people early on do very traditional things. They put their kid in a private school. Over time, as they understand how it works, they start to do a much more of a kind of unbundled education. Not entirely, but large percentages of families do that. So I think ultimately what you're going to see is that you're going to have a lot more families doing kind of quasi-homeschooling type activities as a part of these these programs. Um, And that can mean lots of different things to lots of different people. But I think it's going to press the edges of what you can do in education and that's going to scare a lot of people. So I think quality is going to come down to the same thing of, is homeschooling quality today? Like Those are the debates we're going to have, is like socialization and are we making sure that kids have a well-rounded experience? Those are the things that the debates are going to come around to quality. And I think there's been enough, like the greatest kind of example of homeschooling quality, they didn't orchestrate this, but I think it's the biggest success, has been the National Spelling Bee, right? Like, how many of them have been homeschoolers, right? That's, that's kind of what it comes down to is that people are going to have these warped views of what education is. And then other things are going to rise to the top that change our minds about what accountability can look like. It's going to be people are, that are coming through the system are more entrepreneurial. They're more likely to start a small business. Things like that, that we don't even think about in education today are going to start coming up as what we think about quality. And we're going to have debates about what's more important, uh, making sure that a kid fills out their FAFSA and gets into a college or that that kid starts a small business before the time of their age of 18 or whatever. Those will be the debates I hope to see in the future. I feel like that's the rosiest possible outcome. And I want to be with you. I really do, because this is something I've been pushing this for a long time. I have realistic, real-world kind of policy fears. So you're not as fearful as I am. But these things blow up in our faces sometimes. And I, I study our opponents a lot. The people who are against us on a lot of these things wait for opportunities. They wait for examples of failure to globalize those examples of failures to say the whole thing should go away. And what you just said is true. We might get a few more kids come out that start Googles, right? Like, oh, they were Montessori students and they started Google. We'll get some more of those stories. Or their parents were super entrepreneurial. That's great. I think also what we will get is the system will at some point start taking in large numbers of the parents who didn't succeed because not everybody is starting Googles. A lot of people are going out trying weird, wacky things, and then when it doesn't work and their kids are three years behind, they will come back to the public option, the main system, and the public option will start calculating how many of those kids are behind and by how far, and that will become the story, not the Googles of the world. Chris, can I add one thing, a premise here that I'm struggling with, and I know we're running out of time, but I think we talk about parent like it's like the Presidential Medal of Freedom. You know, Bernie Madoff... (laughs) Was a You're parent. not a parent. Knock it off, Elizabeth Robbie. Holmes <laughs> is a parent. O.J. Simpson was a parent. Like, there are six over 600,000 kids abused every single year on record by their parents. So we're talking about sending money to people and just being like, well, if the parent decides it, we can't say one thing or the other. I'm not comfortable with this. I really am not. Like, I just think that we have a sense that the truancy laws are very powerful for kids who either are abused or who 
the parents are just neglectful, which is if 600,000 reports of abuse are happening, how many parents are just straight up neglectful? And now we're starting to hand money over to people saying, you know what, no strings attached. We assume that they're always going to do what's in the best interest of their kids. But I challenge that premise. Like, I think as when society is starting to hand out those checks, I think society should be able to ask something of people. And I don't assume that those parents are always going to be responsible. Well, and I, I don't think I don't think any ESA advocate or any ESA legislation is no strings attached, right? We can have debates, and the debate right now is about how expansive should those uses be. But I don't think that there's any debate about whether it should be just a check cut to families, no strings attached. Even if it was, right? Like again, I mean, the premise that we need to slow down, make these less expansive. Because some people are going to use them poorly, and that's going to get the opposition to find stories that's going to slow down the growth and it's going to whatever. My rebuttal to that would be like, how is it working for charter school authorization in Philadelphia? Like they haven't authorized a school in six years. And is that because they're doing lots of terrible things? It's, no, they're, the opposition is going to attack anything that competes with them regardless. You take away ESAs, they're going to go after it, something else. You take away charter schools, you're going to have to do something else. And so... The idea that we need to continue to placate the demands of people who do not want these things to exist, to me, is a false premise to be starting with. Because again, let's go back to the child tax credit. Literally cutting checks to $600 to families, going directly into their account. All the reporting is glowing. It's great. No one's misusing this dollars. It's all going to the most amazing things. You do that for education, whether it's a voucher, a charter school, anything else, the, the opposition will attack it because they do not want it to exist. And so... I'm a little less swayed by the whole bad press thing because there's going to be bad press against this. Like there's been against charter schools, private school vouchers, everything since the dawn of time. And so um, I think we need to keep pushing the edges and give more freedom to parents because the more freedom we give them, the more that they can work with individual educators as well. Keep talking about parents. I completely agree. I think one of the biggest beneficiaries of this are going to be educators who are dissatisfied they're not satisfied with the current state. They want to get to a different state. And ESA is a way for them to say, I'm a teacher. I want to be entrepreneurial. I'm going to go open a micro school. I'm going to go do something else on the side. And you now have a pathway to do that where parents and educators can come together to create an education that works for individual kids. That to me is one of the biggest benefits of the ESAs. It's not necessarily funding the families. It's having a market respond to new needs and giving new pathways for people to go into. This is, and I know we got to wrap. This is, and Adam, I would love your final word on all these things. But let me say this. You kind of make fun of a little bit. You're not making fun of it, really. But you talk about this 74 article that has these terrible things that parents would be allowed to spend on. And it's things like a small robot that teaches coding, a kit to build a simple scooter, horseback riding lessons, ice skating and, and sword casting classes. I don't even know what sword casting is. Board games, puzzles, Legos, uh, chicken coops. Chicken coops. Let me say that again. Chicken coops, uh, trampolines, uh, tickets for SeaWorld or whatnot. There's this hit list. If ever we tried to introduce a program and we didn't call it ESAs and said, we think that kids need these range of activities and the government should be paying for it and we should create. If the Democrats, for instance, came up with this as a plan saying, we're going to have a child enrichment program nationally and we're going to have government funded uh, tickets to SeaWorld, board games, puzzles, ice skating, uh, taekwondo classes or lessons, 
I don't know any libertarian or conservative that would be along for the ride on that particular pitch. Or a liberal who would be against it. Yeah, liberals would be totally for it. Yeah, it's all about the framing. Well, and Chris, I think this gets to your point of, and this is, you know, Robbie, you talked about this too, like whose money is it, right? That, that's the debate is I, I take the view of like the Jeffersonian view of like, we need to fund education. The funding side of it is the great enabler in America. I'm less enamored with like the government delivery of education, right? And so uh, my view is that we should be funding the individual education of individual students, the per pupil education, like like Chris said. That's where I think the the root cause of the disagreement is. There's some people who think we should fund a specific type of education and if you don't like that, you go somewhere else. I think you should be we fund the educa- education of individuals and they go out there and figure out what that education looks like. I think that's the ultimate disconnect for lots of people. Well, listen, Adam, you and I are intellectually of the same mind. On Twitter, we might play different roles. Adam, has Chris attacked you on Twitter yet? I have not attacked Adam on Twitter. I don't think so. I, I go on Twitter. I go on fits where I'm on all day for some days, and then I'm not on for a week. So maybe Chris has attacked me in the past week that I haven't seen, but uh, but no. I have not attacked Adam in the past week or whatnot, and we are very close ideologically, intellectually. We have some other differences, I think, in our friends and what they're doing to regulate other parts of education, like regulate what can be taught, where, when, and how, and by who, and all that stuff. But uh, we would love to have you back on the show anytime that you think uh, there's something important to say or talk about, but how can people find you and find out more about your effort on these ESAs? Sure. Yeah, you can find me uh, on the Permissionless Education Substack, like you mentioned. I'm on Twitter at Adam Peshek. You can go to the Stand Together, Stand Together Trust website, where you can find out more information about what we do. Give me a, give me an email. I'm uh, apeshek at standtogether.org if you want to email me. Thanks so much, sir. We appreciate you. Well, as always, this has been another very interesting episode of the Citizen Steward Show. I would love to hear from our listeners what you guys think about it. One way that you can support us is one by talking back to us, giving us feedback. And there are two ways that you could do that. You can send us an email at citizenstewardshow at lostdebate.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 321-213-9171. We would love to hear your feedback. We'll incorporate it into the show. And uh, maybe we'll even give you a mention on a future show. There's another way that you can help us, though. Subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Please give us a rating. And hopefully it's a high one because we put a lot of thinking into how we're making this entertaining for you. And the other way is to share it with friends. Make sure that they know that there's this great show out there that covers the dark forces in education. As always, this has been another episode of The Citizen Stewart Show. I'm Chris Citizen Stewart. We are part of the Lost Debate Network, proud member of that network, and we look forward to talking to you next time. <laughs>